0: Welcome to the Conversion Tracking Playbook, where we share how to overcome tracking challenges that e-commerce brands face today and real-world examples of transforming data into insights. Welcome back to another episode of the Conversion Tracking Playbook. I am your host, Brad Redding, and today, I am pumped to have our Senior Implementation Specialist, John Cairo. John, there are going to be a lot of people excited to hear all of the knowledge that you're going to share regarding challenges of tracking and just general analytics with Headless Commerce. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Brad. All right. So we have a packed episode. We were just going through the outline before jumping in. So I'm not going to waste any time since we have a lot to cover today. So John, can you just start out by providing a 60-second overview for everyone on Headless Commerce, Headless Ecom, Headless Shopify, and then uh, we'll start getting into some of the challenges.
1: Sure. So the idea with a Headless website is you basically disconnect the front end from the back end. So what do I mean? I'm talking about the stuff that you see in front of you when you're in a web browser compared to the stuff that builds what you see. So the information that populates the page. So basically, in a standard Shopify site, you ask Shopify for a page, Shopify populates it with the information they have about your products and everything else, sends it to you. In a headless setup, you have a website in the front end that kind of talks to the back end that requests information that it needs to populate the page, but it sort of builds it itself. There's some caveats to this, like with Gatsby, it's not exactly how it works, and a lot of our clients use Gatsby, but it's a separation of the two parts. Kind of like having your wheels welded to your axles in a car. That's sort of the standard <laughs> setup, not yeah. the best situation. And the, the headless setup is you get your lug nuts and you can un- undo the wheels and do stuff, change them, change the tires without huge problems.
0: Nice. I, I've never heard that metaphor, but I like it. I might, might reuse that. Cool. Okay. So headless, if you aren't familiar with headless, there's a ton of content and we have articles on our site and there's there's others, obviously. The Shoguns, the Cells of the World that put out a lot of headless content. So feel free to dig in outside of this podcast. We are going to jump into some of the challenges that we've seen over the years. So, just for context in the world of Elevar, we first started getting into the world of headless. Um, actually, prior to Elevar, our VP of engineering, Thomas uh, Slade, and I, we worked on a project five, six years ago, and it was really the first iteration that we had been exposed to of, of architecting a, a headless solution. It was for a B2B site. And that quickly transitioned into the Elevar, where we worked closely with uh, Anada and the team at Rothy's during their initial PWA transition, uh, don't quote me, four years ago. But it was a long time ago, comparative to the the, the stampede of folks going to the headless, what seems like today. That exposed really us to a lot of the initial challenges that weren't documented. There weren't articles out there sharing learning lessons. There weren't, you know, there were a few with ghost referrals with single page apps, but nothing specific to e com sites and headless Shopify. And that continued that knowledge we continued to to grow as we started taking on more headless analytics implementations, both with Anada and and others. It's I wouldn't say the challenges are all solved because as we're we're seeing with just tracking and browsers evolving and how headless and pwa builds are evolving as well the challenges are just they're different they're potentially more complex or more hidden or just new and that's why we are talking about it today because we still work with many customers that are going to their own custom headless builds or using other combinations of third-party apps and we want to share some of those challenges and learning lessons with you so that's the that's a little context on how we've seen challenges evolve. Let's dive into some specifics here with Google Analytics, which 95% of seems like Shopify sites are using GA and potentially the the world of e-com. John, can you share what are the most common challenges that you are seeing our customers face with Google Analytics implementations on headless sites?
1: Yeah. So one that we see a lot is something we've dubbed ghost referrals which sounds pretty scary and mm-hmm. i guess it is actually it is scary what happens is you get an increase in <laughs> i
0: hope we the can session break this out the right. session breaks
1: yeah the session yeah. breaks and you get an increase in organic traffic yeah. instead of what should be paid traffic so what's happening is you have a client who lands on your website, GA looks at the location, looks at the UTMs, yep. grabs the UTMs, and takes those for attribution on the first kind of hit. But then on mm-hmm. the next hit, um, what ends up happening is GA looks at the document um, refer, and because it's sort of stale, it looks like it's a Google organic search result, it's traffic from Google organic and so then because that's the last non-direct click potentially in the, the conversion, instead of getting attributed to the Google ad, it gets attributed to Google organic, which is bad.
0: Yeah. Okay. I'm going to restate that and you tell me if it's right or wrong. I, I search for keto bars. I click on a keto bar ad. I land on that product page, that product page has a click ID because I'm coming from a Google ad where auto tagging is enabled, At that point on that initial page load, my session is being attributed to Google ads automatically because GA is detecting G ID and then essentially matching that back to Google paid search. Then when I, the user, I don't do anything different other than just potentially click add to cart and navigate to the cart page. At that point, you are saying that Google Analytics no longer recognizes my session as a as a essentially visit from a Google ad click into the site and they are falling back to the document refer, which is a technical term. I'll just skip over that since I'm trying to trying to just give the high level overview on this, but they no longer see the G click ID or GA doesn't see the G click ID, but they see I still came from google.com so it i'm just i don't know if there's the exact logic but hey google analytics is looking at someone came from google.com from the referrer but there's no gclick id or utms associated to that so i know that meets my rule of organic traffic so if i were to go through and place an order then i as a user in ga would look at session number one that came from google ads and then i ultimately converted on google organic is that correct?
1: That's correct. Yeah. Okay. A little complicated and something that probably you want to see on like a on a chart to yeah. see the flow. But basically yeah. Google's Google is almost always trying to figure out if they can make a new session. That's how I look at it. Like they're sort of trying to make a new session at all times and if you give them a reason, they will. And then because of the attribution model in GA, you might not get what you expect.
0: For you, if you have a headless site, out there or potentially launching one soon i can tell you four years ago being really naive i remember looking and doing that pre-post launch analysis and thinking holy cow after headless site goes live organic explodes and there it must be because site speed is better and google's just lifting our rankings and man it's amazing and just ignoring that wow, Google Ads has plummeted and it might be, oh, that must be a Google Ads issue and something outside, outside of the site. Very naive way of, of thinking and don't be me in that regard when you are looking at your post-launch performance. Uh, I'll link in the show notes uh, our own headless analytics learning lessons that will go into a little bit more visual detail like John mentioned, but you can use the MCF report, so the conversion path report, and you can just do a pre-post-launch and look at source medium and just see if there is a big spike of people coming in from Google CPC that convert in Google organic and then potentially a big drop of people converting uh, Google P- CPC. And that typically is one of the things we'll look at just to diagnose: is, is there a big issue? So John, do you think it's, is it worthwhile to get into the nuance of why does that G-Click ID get lost? Shouldn't Google Analytics just know? Why is it getting lost in that page transition of me c- going from that Keto Bar product page to the cart page? Why why can't Google just still recognize and see that G-Click ID automatically?
1: Yeah, so the way that the headless site typically works is there's, there's sort of like a virtual page change. And because of that virtual page change, um, the URL might be updated but in a typical page change when the URL's updated, so is the, the the referrer, it would be updated to your website, but in this case, it gets stale, gets out of date, and yeah. then it's looked at as if it's not stale.
0: All right, so that's ghost referrals and this same break in attribution, I've personally seen it impact other channels, so it's not necessarily just a Google Ads to Google Organic, it could be coming in through Facebook, with a Facebook click ID or potentially custom UTMs. And then it falls back to looking like Facebook referral inside the source medium reports. Is that correct as well? So it's not just a Google issue per se.
1: Yeah, it makes sense. I think anything where you have that situation where the document location and refer kind of get out of sync, this can happen probably most obvious with Google because that's probably a big, the big, one of the biggest parts of your paid traffic.
0: Yeah. Okay. Issue number two that we see a lot with Google Analytics in headless setups. What's number two? MyShopify.com session restarts?
1: I think so, yeah. So it's this really again, it's sort of the same issue, right? It's a session break. This time potentially you're sending your customer to check out on, let's say, PayPal, and then PayPal is redirecting you back to a myShopify.com thank you page. So what in that case you may lose all of the cookie data and local storage that's associated with the session on your headless website. So when they get dropped on the thank you page, we'll likely still fire a purchase event if you're using our setup, but we have nothing to look at and reference to say where that person came from. So it ends up going to GA as direct. Yeah. Which is again, uh pretty serious problem you're basically losing all attribution in that that scenario
0: i've seen this issue many times as well the some of the other issues that i've seen and we will just see it in general with headless sites is a lack of a data layer on the site and not that the data layer is the end-all be-all but there there can be that point where there's so much focus on the user experience and getting the site live and testing and everything else that goes into managing this new site and process. The previous way of just we're going to install the Facebook app or the Google Shopping app or Elevar and GTM and everything just magically works doesn't necessarily happen with headless sites, especially if it's a custom build, because there aren't any as of today, any really just plug and play data layers that are going to match to what you need for the enhanced e-commerce for GA that can then plug into your Facebook tracking, et cetera. And that essentially can cascade down to your reports. So think about your enhanced e-commerce reports inside of GA or your potential remarketing that you're doing across Facebook that rely on different product data and any, any other channels that you might be relying on. Anything else in the Google Analytics challenges that you wanted to focus on before we jump into potentially other channel related issues?
1: I think we briefly touched on it. Just the idea that the page views are sort of virtual. They don't really work like they typically work on a standard site. So that can cause some grief in terms of when to say, when to tell GA a page view actually happened. Because if a root change happens, which is like a virtual page view mm-hmm. you need to tell ga that the page was switched because it's, it's not going to understand that
0: yeah this is where this needs to be a video podcast not an audio podcast so that the way to verify that with your own setup is you can look at a primary and secondary dimension of your page title and then the page url and if you see page titles so look at your home page title which might be you know, Elevar homepage, but you see Elevar homepage, page title associated to slash keto product bars. That is a symptom of the pages are changing, but it's not sending the proper data, like John was saying, to your analytics where quote unquote product page view, a virtual page view is actually sending data from the homepage because that was the previous page that was stored from the landing page visit. That was a great, great call out. And by, yeah, I guess Elevar is getting into selling keto uh, protein bars or product product <laughs> bars at seems some like, point. Seems like. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't eaten yet, so I'm hungry. That, maybe that's why I'm focused on food, food products. That's Google Analytics. Let's get into the rest of tracking. So we're just going to bucket Facebook, affiliates, Google Ads. We'll bucket all of that into this next challenge that we see often. The no data layer, that is one that impacts GA, but it also will impact your marketing channels. And again, I'll just use the Facebook remarketing so in general, if you the old way, if you're using native, just a standard Shopify theme and either the LLVAR data layer in, in our integrations or the native Shopify app setup, it's essentially a set it and forget it where someone views a product page and adds to cart that those events are automatically sending all of the product data. So your product SKU, product price, et cetera. If you don't have a data layer or you don't have this custom implemented in your headless site, then the user who is viewing that product page and adding to cart you might be sending the general page view event for facebook but potentially not sending those view content and add to cart events that typically are going to be used in your remarketing campaigns 50 percent or more it seems like i've seen that issue pop up over the last three or four years with new sites going live and hiring us to come and do an audit and just fix things would you agree? Do you see still see that quite often today?
1: For sure. I think because the process of building a headless site is fairly complicated, I think the tracking is typically an afterthought. It's just like, let's build the site, let's get the site working. And then and then you realize, you know, especially for developers who don't do this all the time after it's yeah. done you realize you don't have any tracking. And when you go into uh, Shopify and put in your pixel ID and your GA ID, it's not going to do anything.
0: Because the apps that you are setting up in Shopify, they only work on a Shopify theme. They aren't also going to work on your headless. So basically the non-Shopify checkout or account pages.
1: Exactly. And we can qualify that a little bit because they will work on the checkout pages, but you probably want more information than that.
0: Yeah. Okay. So a couple other things that we see in just the quote unquote rest of tracking challenge. So affiliates, that's another one. I think that comes up quite a bit where they if we think about an impact radius or share sale or others where they rely. Historically, they would have a script that they would rely on picking up a query parameter, setting that in a cookie or in local storage, and then their conversion. So the purchase conversion would pull that into the actual conversion that is triggered on a purchase event. That's one is that also something that you see as an issue that pops up potentially because if you're going across domains or even subdomains, that some of these scripts they're they're not set up to pass cookie values from a top level domain to a subdomain.
1: For sure. Like potentially it might not be set as cookie domain auto, which means that the cookies apply to all of the the top level domain and everything below. So that's an
0: issue. Just to jump in to clarify the top-level domain, what we mean by that is somebody comes in to Com, and my share, sale, track, and script will pick up the query parameter, set that, and it's assigned to www.getelver.com. However, when I'm handed off to checkout and I go checkout on checkout.getelver.com, sometimes these scripts, I lose that cookie because they are only looking at that cookie that's assigned to www.gedeliver.com. Is that right?
1: Exactly. And there's ways to get around that. You can pass these cookies around and decorate the links and then bring them in and set them. There's definitely ways around it, but it's just something you have to be super aware of.
0: Yeah. Big, if you rely on affiliates, test this. Just test it before going live because it will become quickly become a big issue post-launch. And this is where I can plug one of my other recent episodes on why affiliate conversion tracking and and how potentially going server-side can fix some of those tracking issues so take a listen to that if you have not listened to that episode already back to the challenges and the rest of tracking bucket that we're going through what are uh, what are a few more issues that you see john
1: the fact that the standard apps don't work in the headless context is that really is like the shocker right Mm -hmm. that none of the things that I don't know what's what's another example. You know the apps that show. You probably know the name of these, but they show like this person recently purchased in Iowa. Yeah, the
0: FOMO, the FOMO apps.
1: Yeah, like if if you want to use one of those apps, that's not going to work. You're going to have to most likely build that yourself or find a library that supports it. But on and on down the road, right? Like if the app touches the front end, you're not you're most likely not going to be able to use it in its full capacity, or maybe at all. So, yeah, in, in my opinion, that's like the, the biggest
0: one. I think that's a good summary of all of our most common challenges. We went through about 10 of them, ghost referrals, myshop.com, domain session restarts. That one, if you have a live site or you're going live soon, just go through and QA and go through all of your different alternate payment methods so you can actually validate if you're going through PayPal or Google Pay or Apple Pay or any other third party actually go through and see what your landing page do you get redirected to a myshopify.com domain and then the no data layer the affiliate query parameter tracking the cookie issues going from a top level domain to cross domain the root versus page url change and ultimately the apps don't necessarily work one thing i just noticed that i didn't mention is the split implementation so like John said, you can still use the native Shopify apps if that's your preference for the new headless site. You more than likely would need to have a separate setup for the headless side. So we do have some customers that they are using GTM and how we help implement the tracking on the headless site. But then once the user, the customer is transitioned onto the Shopify theme or Shopify checkout, then the GTM implementation can stop or the our implementation stops. And then the native Shopify apps can pick, that, can pick up from there. Those are just challenges with tracking without making this a 2-hour long episode of the all the other challenges and benefits to to going headless. I'll just ask the question so with all of the potential tracking things to consider and challenges, why why are some of the reasons that brands are still going headless today?
1: To be honest, I think the core of it is and you and Thomas hit on this a little bit the the words that nobody wants to say is uh, lighthouse scores and essentially speed and i think i think that's the driving force behind these companies trying to go headless is they perceive speed to be extremely important and yes if you if you go headless you you do have it doesn't guarantee it's going to be fast but you do have the opportunity to make it faster than what Shopify currently does with their non-headless setups. So you get potentially, like we've talked about Gatsby a little bit, it's what most of our clients are using. Gatsby's pretty notorious for being able to get a 100% Lighthouse score. So you're probably... Right now, maybe you're at 50% if you do. And this is like a speed test for anybody who's not familiar that Google offers. It's like a synthetic speed test. Your site probably doesn't look great right now if it's running on Shopify. No matter how much work you've done, when you switch to Gatsby, it's going to say it's super fast and it's going to love it. How important does that in a world that's kind of shifting from that metric to core web vitals that are like a little bit more human? hmm I think, is up for debate. So that's one, one aspect is speed. The other thing is flexibility. So we talked about the car with the wheels welded to it. You really can, once you have a headless setup, you really can kind of swap things in and out. So you could essentially completely change the design of the front end with, with doing very little work to the back end. You, you, you might be able to use the exact same calls and everything, and you could just redesign the front end. So there's flexibility in that. Um, just this, not only the loading speed, but the speed with which you like transition through the site is, it's faster because like we talked about virtual page loads, you're just asking for the information that you need and no more instead of everything, every time you reload the page. So I guess the next obvious thing is just iteration is easier. Um, if you're not doing it, it's easy to do a full swap, but if you wanted to do like iterative stuff, it's, it's quite simple. You don't have to touch the back end. And then I think the most important part is what it should really do is provide like a better customer experience. I, I think that's really why brands should be doing it. And we've seen interesting things like I can think of one brand that has like a package builder, like a really complicated package builder. And it allows them to offer the product in a way that they they might not be able to if they weren't in control of the front end in its entirety so all this stuff comes with caveats but um you could do this on a non-headless shop but on a headless shop you can do things that would be very difficult to do if you weren't if you didn't have that much control and i think yeah like certain brands i think it makes sense for like putting this package together maybe people wouldn't buy this if they couldn't build it uh, in this like custom way that the brand i'm talking about is done so in that in that sense i think it makes a lot of sense
0: yeah, I could go off on a tangent here. I'm I'm pr- fairly opinionated on this this question of of why. And again, I, I want to try to keep my opinions focused on the analytics side and the challenges that we see. As, as you know, John, we we built back in 2018 one of the first headless Shopify sites was Trivetkin Trivetkin.com, and that was a headless Shopify Gatsby Prismic setup. And Thomas and I spoke out at the Shopify LA headquarters. Pre-COVID. I think this was 2019 and their headless meet up, get together. And uh it, it's it's been interesting just seeing that this space evolve over the last four to five years. I think you might have mentioned it, but for most, it's probably not worth it at this time. And again, there's there's a lot of other smart people in this space that are uh, have a lot of great research and opinions and and uh just what's the latest in the last year or two with this. And I know we're going to touch on hydrogen here in a little bit. So to summarize, primary benefit that we still hear from our customers that ultimately they're coming to us for helping with tracking and analytics issues is the site speed. They're looking for the site speed benefit.
1: Mm-hmm. I think so.
0: The joke is okay pre-tracking, and I remember we we did this every time we release a new feature during the build process with Stravetkin and a new. We added new third-party tracking, whether it's GTM or hard-coded. We did a pre-post Lighthouse score. And just to see the trend line go down after you added everything, it's the, hey, pre Elevator pre-tracking, we were at 85. And then once we add all of our tracking, we're down at 40. And that's the conversation that doesn't always happen, that should happen. You can't have all of your marketing and the marketing engine on a headless site and still expect to have... A site speed score of 95 to 100 and it's not because they can't work together if if you listen to the episode that thomas and i did on why can't all client-side tracking move to server-side yet is most channels aren't ready they're not ready to give up the freedom of having their tracking run in the browser and do their fingerprinting grab everything so they their libraries need to be loaded so it, it really does come down to Okay, if you want all of your marketing tracking on the site, and if you can't go server side, it has to be there. You can do things to delay and you know some other advanced techniques to potentially manipulate the Lighthouse score. But at the end of the day, the Lighthouse score is just a score. It's not necessarily the it's not the real experience that the user is going to see. But off my soapbox on the on the, the headless Lighthouse and worth it or not, site speed is certainly a, one of the main priority main reasons that we're seeing.
1: I just want to add something to that because you know what we're missing something in that people are they're chasing site speed because they say they see these studies that say, you know, every increase in or or decrease in loading time by a hundred milliseconds, your conversion rate's going to go up by 4% or something crazy like that. And I think, I I really think that that's what's driving this. Right. And the fact of the matter is, and this is a personal opinion, but that linear relationship is like way, way overstated.
0: Yeah. Share the example that we were talking before we jumped on with the uh, the diet. That was a great, it was a great way to frame the frame that the decrease by X and improve by Y.
1: Yeah. So like in medicine, there's these uh, epidemiological studies where they basically look at, every, they don't control for anything like in an AB test. That's like a randomized control trial. But in in an epidemiological study, you just look at everything in sum and try and make conclusions so for instance if you look at people who eat red meat and people who eat red meat have like a higher instance of i colon cancer or something like that but the fact of the matter is that people who eat red meat are also like way more likely to be overweight They're way more likely to drink a lot, you know, and on and on. And then you're coming in and parsing the data and saying, well, the reason is because this one thing. And to take it back to, like, our context, you know, people with good conversion rates probably maybe they're they're a little bit more intelligent in the way they're spending their marketing dollars. So maybe they figured out how to exclude certain audiences that weren't converting. And now you're attributing that to an increase in site speed which isn't fair the only way you could tell for sure is if you ran the two sites in parallel one headless and one non right with the exact same people visiting that's the only way you could actually make that conclusion
0: yeah i love the hey we noticed that if you eat red meat that you are less likely to live longer is, is that right
1: Something like
0: that, yeah. Yeah, and then it was, well, actually, we've also found that study that people, the people that eat red meat versus those that don't in this study, they smoke, they drink every day, they don't exercise. <laughs> so yeah. it's the, it's, yeah, the, the correlation is in the causation per se where, well, yeah, they're not living as longer because they're doing all these other things that are impacting their end life. But anyways, this isn't, uh, this isn't the medical. No, 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 not medical <laughs>
1: advice. We need a disclaimer.
0: Yeah. All right. So just to keep this moving, as we go to uh, how to manage headless analytics implementations, this is something that we do. So we're going to break down exactly the process we go through with our customers so you can think about it for yourself and potentially uh, work with your team to prevent some of the challenges and issues that we see happen today with going live with a headless site. John, this is your world. Walk everyone through the process that we take with our customers and what we see work well and prevent a lot of those challenges with GA and Facebook tracking, et cetera.
1: Yeah. So normally if you're non-headless, you install our app and our app kind of generates the data layer for you, surfaces events for you. Like we've talked about a couple times now, that's not going to happen when you build a headless website, our app can't really connect. So you have to do this manually. And basically what the task is, is to recreate what we do in our app on a non-headless site in the front end. So you're going to have to Pull whichever API you're using, maybe the storefront API, and get information about your products. And then you're gonna let's say somebody's on a product detail page. You're gonna have to pull the information that all your tags need from the storefront API and then push it into the data layer in an event, maybe a a view item event. We have we have all this documented. It's a little bit tedious because these objects that you need to push have, you know, really specific shapes. But that's the idea. There's about eight or nine or 10 events that you need to collect information for, fire them at the right time, and then we can listen for them in GTM and we kind of take it from there.
0: And these events are, the, the event is a view, a product view, an add to cart, and potentially a cart view, product list impressions. It's those those events, correct?
1: Bingo. Yeah. And then the next piece of the puzzle is sort of getting some of the information into the purchase object, the order object. And I I don't want to get into the details here, but you need to push a little bit of information to Shopify having to do with the attribution on that particular visit so that we can connect it to our webhooks. But that's, I mean, and beyond, you know, doing all the fixes that for things we've talked about, like ghost referrals, that's, it's really, it's really building the data layer. That's, that's the huge hurdle, right?
0: So step one, build the data layer, whether you use the spec that we provide and help on or you go to Google's Docs, which they essentially spell out exactly what a data layer looks like, with the development team to implement that to make sure that those events are being pushed and updated based on various events that are happening across the site, like a product view, add to cart. And then those events that they're pushing into the data layer they can then be attached to tags inside of Google Tag Manager. That can function as normal like they would if you were using the Elovar data layer on a standard Shopify theme or potentially other apps that do the same thing. And then part two is potentially a little bit more specific to Elovar, but this is the fact of, okay, we know we need query parameters or some attribution data on the Shopify order in order for our server side integrations to work properly because If you think about conversions or purchases, instead of just relying on tags triggering in the browser, we are handling them through webhook integrations, sending to GA, Facebook, et cetera. With the goal to still maintain that 99% accuracy of conversions that happen, make it to each destination, and they have the most accurate attribution data possible, they need to link back, connect to sessions, et cetera.
1: Exactly. They just need to stick that information onto the order for us.
0: Cool. So the go live, all the tracking is updated on site. What are some things that you've seen from customers over the last few years on just it's not the you launch and set it and forget it and everything's done. There is the process of actively keeping your tracking up to date. One would be your three to six months post launch and you are adding new channels. That is an example where you potentially might need to work with your development team to implement the tracking to grab the click ID, query parameter, if it's an affiliate. Can you share a little bit more about that, John, and just what you've seen post-launch?
1: For sure. Well, what you just said is the it's exactly the the issue. And maybe to just get a little bit more specific, for example, with TikTok, um, we recently added some TikTok webhooks. If you had have implemented your uh, headless website six months ago, we wouldn't be aware of the TikTok click ID and you wouldn't have built for that. But mm-hmm. now, let's say you want to add TikTok and you want to track TikTok in the, in your headless site, you're going to have to now look for that. It's called the TTCL ID and you're going to have to look for that in the URL when somebody clicks into your site. And if it's there, you're going to have to save it and basically push it on to us yeah. so we yeah. can use it later on. So, it's not going to work out of the box, unfortunately. There's going to be some work to do. Now, how often does that happen? I don't know. Like, click IDs are the issue, not necessarily UTMs. You're, you're going to set up your UTMs to get grabbed uh, in a pretty systematic way. But I don't know, in the last six months, I think there's been a couple we've encountered, like TikTok. What's the affiliate one that we recently added? Impact.
0: Impact, yeah.
1: They have a click ID. So something to consider for sure.
0: Yeah. And then the the other one which I don't know how much you're still seeing this happen today but the headless site gets launched and it might be a partial launch or not necessarily feature complete and then they'll you might bolt on subscriptions or something else post launch. That would be another area that again, you if you were to roll something out fairly feature intense, you would need to go through that tracking exercise. So if it was a subscription product that you're adding is making sure that the product data for that is set up. The added cart's triggering triggering for that. Any any other examples of post-launch things to consider and making sure that accurate tracking is maintained?
1: To be honest, the big one is just regression. like issue. They have their data layer set up and then something mm-hmm. changes. Somebody touches something and then all of a sudden they're not pushing the product ID to all their events and now tracking doesn't work quite like we yeah. expect so it's just a matter of keeping that data layer in good shape
0: cool good tips there the last part to wrap up is going to be just some random thinkings and vision that we see ahead this is we live in the world of e-com and shopify and tracking and have had a lot of exposure to headless builds and uh, different companies going through that process of building their own products and apps What's your vision? What do you see in the next six to twelve months in the the world of headless?
1: Yeah, so I I think this all needs to be prefaced with the fact that this is a challenge. Like, a headless website is a challenge, and we work with tons of awesome developers all the time. It doesn't really, I don't think it's that related to, like, the quality of the developer. It's just this tracking world to get into is difficult on its own, and then on top of that you're building a website with some new
0: technology. So... And you're a developer yourself, so you you can state that, and so, yeah, you're an engineer, you're a developer yourself, so you know what you're talking about in this regard.
1: Right. It's just, it's tedious and ex- it's expensive. And we see lots of clients spending a lot of money doing this. Mm-hmm. So, I think, um, you know, it's something to be wary of and make sure that it makes sense for you. But Shopify, so we've been talking about Gatsby and Gatsby is a framework that's really popular. I think like every single site that I've done uses Gatsby and it's fine, but it's not built. It was not built to be, to do this. I I believe it was built as a blogging platform. It has technologies that we can use and that help. It works with React and does some rendering on the server. But the fact of the matter is, out of the box, it doesn't understand what a store is. Shopify's just released a technology called Hydrogen. It's in developer preview, I think, still. If you look at it and dig into the details, it's kind of, I mean, in a simple sense, it's just a much better Gatsby. It's, it understands what a store is. It understands what a card is. And I think we're going to see everybody shift over to that because it's going to speed up the dev cycle a lot. And I think what eventually happens is there's going to be a hydrogen theme store and you're going to be able to buy headless themes. You can already grab a hydrogen theme and launch with it. It is in preview, but you could foreseeably just grab the theme and launch and be in a headless world without our tracking, without any tracking, but you yeah. could launch and have a store with it much faster. Like, multiple times faster than you would do with Gatsby. So I think that's where we're going. And I think you're going to be able to buy these themes, just like you can buy a standard Shopify theme in the next year or two-ish, something like that.
0: Yeah. If that happens, what, do a lot of the challenges that we just spoke about still exist? Or do you think the ability to have apps plug into the hydrogen theme is that the the future similar to how apps uh, function today with a standard Shopify theme or Shopify 2.0 even? Yeah,
1: that's such a good question. I think long-term probably that's that's exactly what's going to happen because there's events that happen in in hydrogen that you can listen for. Same thing with mm-hmm. Gatsby, but it's more standardized with hydrogen. So maybe we're going to get to a point where basically all the events are being fired inside of hydrogen by default and then you can listen any app can listen kind of like it does with the standard theme and do its thing yeah so maybe
0: yeah i'll share one this isn't necessarily future but i think just a something that you notice as well if we just look at some of our customers some of the fastest growing customers we have haven't have not gone headless yet and potentially don't plan to and there's many reasons for that, I'm not necessarily suggesting that's the way to do it, but it does stand out to me where you have the, potentially brands that have a heavier focus on marketing, testing marketing channels, iterating, just want to be potentially more nimble, that they've chosen that route to prioritize the ability to move fast and iterate in marketing, and not as much on the user experience of, okay, we, re- we want, Just the ability to create these custom like really highly custom pages that are fast and easy to use. So I think that that's that's really been interesting to watch over the last three years as the the market has evolved.
1: You see it a lot. You see like some of the best performing websites not being headless a lot in the clients we work with. So super important to keep in mind. Like if you think that everybody who has, I don't know, a conversion rate of seven percent has a headless website. That that's not true. That's just not the way that it is.
0: But I will say we have there are some amazing, uh, amazing headless sites that we've seen rolled out from different customers, Pack Digital uh partner we work with, they've they have a bunch of you know, cuts and liquid IV and a few others. I think there's just been a lot of really, really cool sites and just different unique features that they've they've been pushing out, rolling out over the last couple of years. Uh again, our focus, analytics, tracking, making sure that Things can be reported and you can do your pre-post-launch analysis, which again can be nuanced with some of the ghost referral issues where you might need to look at user-based performance versus session-based performance. But we are 45 minutes in roughly. Anything else on the the headless tracking and conversion tracking world that we missed?
1: I don't think so. I think we should kill it here.
0: (laughs) All righty. We'll wrap it up. And if you have not listened to the client-side versus server-side tracking and why all marketing channels can't move server-side tracking. Definitely listen to that. That's with Thomas. And the reason why I'm mentioning that is because that was very focused around site speed since that is, a again, almost a direct competitor to going headless is all the tracking that you still have to go live and then that uh, inherently can impact and make the, the whole headless site, site speed move to uh, not potentially be as fast or have the scores that you're looking for. Listen to that episode. And that's a wrap. See you next time. Did you enjoy today's episode? If so, we release two new episodes per week. So be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else that you subscribe and listen to your podcasts. I also have a favor to ask. I'd really appreciate if you could leave a comment or review so I can learn exactly how to improve future episodes for you. And last but not least, if you want to connect with me, find me on LinkedIn by searching Brad Redding at Elevar. That's E-L-E-V-A-R. Or you can DM me on Twitter. My handle is I am Brad Redding. I look forward to connecting with you. Thanks again.